Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. We will rip up the script here. We are honored to bring you Ian Bremmer today with Eurasia Group. His top 10 risks did not include rudeness in Alaska, but nevertheless, that's what we need to focus on. And we're hugely advantaged that Dr. Bremmer uh, could join us this morning. Ian Bremmer at the Geneva Conference of 1954, the Secretary of State of the United States refused to shake hands with a gentleman from China. We then moved on and oscillated to the wonderment of ping pong diplomacy of 1971. What was the ping-pong diplomacy across those two tables that we witnessed yesterday? Most important bilateral relationship in the world, uh, also the most challenging for the Americans to manage, certainly one of the more dysfunctional. And it shows that uh, Biden and the Biden administration have been talking about China and operating largely in a vacuum uh, over the first 50 days. Uh, And that's, as a consequence, been very easy to talk up how tough they're going to be on China. And now they're actually engaged with China and the Chinese government is having none of it. Right. I mean, their their belief that they don't need to be talked down to by a, a group of American exceptionalists, the Chinese belief that their system is every bit as valid as legitimate. And, and the Americans don't believe mm-hmm. that. Right. So that that's that's pretty core. It's pretty fundamental. What is the debris here of Trump Pompeo? Do you link the two or is this separate and discreet to maybe the transfer from Obama to Biden? They're very similar in terms of orientation of actual policy issues, whether you're talking about Taiwan or Hong Kong or the South China Sea or intellectual property theft or cyber, um, or or trade, Uh, there's not an awful lot of daylight between what the Biden administration is concerned about and what the Trump administration is concerned about. We can cherry pick a few issues where you see some differences. Even the Uyghurs, where Trump never talked about human rights, the actual policy under Trump, Biden, very similar. Where you see an enormous difference is that, number one, the Biden administration is trying to work very deliberately with allies in advance, trying to coordinate U.S.-China policy with the Quad, and that means the core allies in Asia, not including South Korea, because Japan has a problem with the South Koreans, but Australia, Japan, and India, and also core allies in Europe, the EU3, less successfully because the Europeans do not view China the way the Americans do. And that, of course, is the UK, France, and Germany. None of that coordination was happening under Trump. The other big difference between Biden and Trump is that the Biden administration is actually having a policy review. What's that? With principles across the cabinet that are actually trying to work out a strategic policy that then Biden will discuss with the principles and make a calculated, calibrated decision on how they're going to roll that out. Uh, You know, this was a Trump was a game time quarterback. He sees an opportunity. He throws the ball. 
He's not waiting to see what kind of a review is going to happen from his, you know, various members of cabinet who obviously aren't as bright, shouldn't be listened to the way his judgment carries. So it is quite different in terms of how you operationalize what those those relatively similar core policies. So, Ian, approach is going to be different and emphasis will be different, too. So let's talk about approach just briefly. And I think you mentioned the most important aspect of trying to get a multilateral approach together. That was just Europe. Where's Germany on this? Where is Europe on this? And is there actually any space there to get Europe on board? Uh, the Europeans are, of course, more aligned with the United States than they are with China. But the Europeans are making very clear that if the United States is heading towards a policy of containment with China, they are not on for that. I want to be clear. In the United States, it is uh, an absolute core national security agreement across the political spectrum that China is the most critical adversary of the United States. The Europeans don't buy that at all. China is not their core adversary. Uh, and, and that's a real problem. And that is going to get harder to bridge because of Brexit, because the United Kingdom is the European country that is most aligned with the United States in national security orientation, in diplomatic orientation. They are no longer, of course, a member of the European Union, and their relationship with the EU is increasingly fraught. And also, Angela Merkel, who is sort of the voice of stability and reason and multilateralism in trying to keep the Americans and Europeans on side, is losing power, is leaving power, and the next coalition in Germany is likely to be a bit weaker. Macron, Emmanuel Macron, is, is going to be the most important strategic voice of foreign policy in the continent. And his orientation is all about strategic autonomy, European sovereignty, a third way. It is going to be very, very challenging. I'll tell you, uh, you know, the markets have been talking about how there's a honeymoon between Biden and the Europeans, and certainly the Europeans are much happier to see uh, Biden than Trump. Uh, but I would argue that even though the decoupling of the U.S. and Europe has decelerated under Biden, it is continuing. And it's continuing for structural and strategic reasons, irrespective of the fact that Biden and his core team are fundamentally transatlanticists at yeah. heart. Not just the issue over China, also the issue over Russia as well, with Germany looking lonely increasingly so over the last couple of days. Ian, let's finish on this. Where do you see a space for success? What can this administration achieve on the foreign policy front with regard specifically to China? Um, the United States and China are massively interdependent in terms of trade, uh, in terms of their purchasing of our treasuries, in terms of the global economy and responding to things like climate change. And, and so the simple fact that that relationship persists in a relatively stable way, I mean, you might not consider that points on the board, but frankly, it's important. In terms of progress, we're very far from progress, but what you want to watch for, and you anticipated this in your last segment, what's going to happen around Earth Day? Um, what's going to happen around John Kerry? who's in, in many ways the most important new appointment of the entire Biden cabinet, former Secretary of State John Kerry. Uh, you know, we, there, there is no question that if you are going to resolve or even make significant progress in global climate, the two largest carbon emitters in the world need to have some willingness to work together. That is going to, it's a tall order, but it's also a critical 
concern of both countries. We will see where it goes. Ian, always great to catch up. Great to see you. Yeah, Ian Bremer there, Eurasia Group and G Zero Media President. Someone who has been very visible from the beginning of this terrible natural disaster, Peter Hotez, Baylor College of Medicine, joins us right now and dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine. Dr. Hotez, would you take the AstraZeneca vaccine right now? Yes, I would. In fact, I've offered uh, to do that. And the reason is this, uh, you know, the Europeans have been quite tone deaf to how sensitive vaccines are to public perception, or, or, or as I often like to say, it doesn't take much to vote even a good vaccine off the island if the public doesn't feel confident. And the way the individual European countries have handled this has, has been abysmal. So the EMA statement, uh, the European Medicine Agencies, which is the regulatory body in Europe, statement uh, yesterday is important, but that's not going to be enough for all the to, for all the damage control that's going to be needed. That statement that the German Institute made, the Paul Ehrlich Institute, which is their regulatory body, was just so damning. And and the fact that the French suspended its use with oblivious to the impact that would have on Francophone Africa, uh, because the Francophone Africa very much gets its guidance for, from France. Um, th this is, I'm really worried. I'm really worried about uh, what's going to happen in the coming week. I have noticed, and James Mur uh, Mur uh, Burns Murdoch at the FT, a major shout out, Brazil and Latin America seems to be unraveling. To me, India is a statistical mystery as well. Are we winning in this battle with a pandemic or are we deluding ourselves? Well, what you really have to do is go country to country. I think, you know, in the U.S., we're slowly getting our arms around this. We're in a race uh, with the B117 variant from the UK uh, with vaccinating the American people. Um, the next few weeks are absolutely going to be critical. Um, Africa is uh, d doesn't have vaccine. That's that's going to be that's a that's a disaster in the making. Latin America doesn't have vaccine. That's a disaster in the making. Uh, India is is doing what it can to step up uh, to be the be the vaccine supplier for the world's low and middle income countries. Uh, that that's a positive. Russia and China have largely bypassed international regulatory authorities like WHO prequalification and making these one-off deals with countries. That's a disaster. So it's a very, very complicated and mixed picture right now. Doctor, I have to follow up on something you've brought up, and I'm embarrassed to say I hadn't even thought about it, how the issues in France around this vaccine would spill over culturally to the issues in Africa as well. When you say we could see a disaster, can you describe what that disaster would look like? Well, the disaster is... It looks like the South African variant, the B1351, is accelerating now up into Malawi, Mozambique. And even though Africa overall has done better than many expected during 2020, that grace period could end as this virus starts to accelerate. And, there are not, and the world has been very focused on very high-tech innovations, uh, mRNA vaccines that will never filter or I don't think will filter to the low and middle income countries. Yes, Pfizer-BioNTech sent, sent 235,000 doses to Rwanda. That was great. But look at the need. There are 1.1 billion people living in sub-Saharan Africa. If we need two doses of most of those vaccines, that's 2 billion doses. So, so far, it's a drop in the bucket. And there's no real plan for what we do. We're trying to accelerate a low-cost recombinant protein vaccine with another Indian producer, Biological E, and that's going really well. So hopefully we can fill that gap. But that that's a potentially humanitarian crisis right there for Africa. Are you Africa. receiving sufficient funding to do that, doctor? 
Uh, no, I mean, we had to raise a lot of that money uh, privately um, from, from various sources and here wow. in Texas, enough to do the technology transfer to uh, India. And uh, now we're, we're in discussions with South Africa and, and Indonesia. So hopefully that will come through. But, you know, everybody was went very heavy on the innovation. Um, and and, and innovation is important. We need to innovate in, in vaccines. But, you know, at a certain stage, you need some uh, traditional, low-cost, durable vaccines for low- and middle-income countries. And, and there was not enough attention paid to that. Oh, Peter Hotez, thank you so much. I noticed your bookshelf behind you, no doubt, Walter. Isaacson's new book on genetics uh, will take a place there as well. The heritage that John and I have is to talk to experts. And if you know the name Cowan, you know they own aviation. With the legendary Kaivon Rumor and the ever-so-younger Helene Becker, they have been at the top of the heap on airline analysis. And we're thrilled Helene Becker could join us uh, this morning. Helene, within your note is the rollout you are guessing at, which is Cancun at some point. And then we're going to jot off to Paris as they go into lockdown this weekend. And somewhere way out in 2022, uh, we're going to be able to go to Asia. Can the airlines wait that long? Are the airlines in control of their destiny? I think they are. And and, and it's good to see you again, Tom and, and John. Nice to talk to you guys. Um, I think they are in control of their own destiny at this point. Over the past week, we've regularly seen more than a million people a day pass through TSA. And we thought that that would be the case till about mid-May. And then around Memorial Day weekend, we we think there will be a jailbreak, and we'll see regularly between 1.1 and 1.5 million people a day. And frankly, we think that's pretty close to pre-pandemic levels in domestic traffic. Right. People don't want to go. People don't want to quarantine, especially you know if you only have yeah. um, a, a week or two of vacation. You really don't want to stay in a hotel room right. somewhere or come back in. So we need to see those quarantines lifted. And our view has been as more vaccine gets into people's arms, we think that will happen. I think New York is lifting quarantine rules this weekend. And I think or I think things will start to get better. And I do think the airlines well, will benefit from domestic traffic. Do they have the empty planes to bring on capacity? Is it an easy exercise for, say, Delta to bring on new planes or do they just pack the planes as they did pre-pandemic? Yes. Yes to both. So in Delta's case specifically, because you asked about them, they are not selling middle seats until after April 30th. So when you think about that, as demand improves, they'll bring back those middle seats. And that's about a 30% increase in capacity without adding a single aircraft. And then for the other airlines that we're seeing um, that, that, that parked aircraft in the desert, Last year, those aircraft will start to come back as demand warrants. I think the airlines are trying not to get too far over their skis. I don't see them bringing back wide-body aircraft this summer in, in huge measure because Europe is still, for most, most of Europe is still closed. Um, but we, when, when Boris Johnson announced his plan for reopening the UK in mid-May, EasyJet saw a 337%, 334% increase in bookings that night. Real. I know, and because people are sick of being home and cooped up, and they want to get out and about. And we're more worried about Europe. Um, 
than we are about U.S. airlines because of that, because Europe has been so locked down. And I think also people people don't want to wear a mask for eight or, or 10 hour flights. People are done a. with this, Elaine. As you know, they're totally done with this. And what's amazing, before we move on and just speed on yes. to the boom in the United States, we've got to look back on where we were. I remember talking to you in the depths of this crisis. It felt depressing. It was depressing. The likes of Warren Buffett, a legendary investor, dumped his airline stocks in April last year. And Berkshire Hathaway said, the world has changed. And Helene, so many people got this wrong because so much is coming back so quickly. Why is it so difficult to get a read on this industry? It always has been <laughs> for, for the whatever, for almost four decades that I've covered this industry. It's been very up and down. Two or three good years, maybe one great year, and then four or five so-so or bad years. It's so cyclical and so dependent on consumer discretionary spending. And then, of course, business traffic, which you're kind of alluding to here. Um, in the million people a day we're seeing, we're really not seeing much business traffic, maybe small and medium-sized companies who need to get out on the road to generate revenue, but we're really not seeing corporate business traffic come back yet. They're still worried about getting their people back to work. But we think that's a fourth quarter 21 event where people will start to get back on the road. Um, we think maybe 80% of the way back by year end 22, and then maybe the other 20% comes back over 23 to 26 or 7. So let's talk about opportunities then, because right now everyone's on board with the domestic story here in America. Everyone's on board with the return of travel. Everyone's on board with the likes of Alaska, nicely leveraged to that story. Helene, when do we start to talk about the New York-London corridor reopening, the European story reopening? Is there an opportunity there now, or have we already missed that too? Oh, no, I don't think we've missed it at all. I think um, United is the most leveraged to international traffic. 50% of their capacity is in international, bigger than both um, American and Delta. So I think that that international corridor starts to come back probably September, October. I'm kind of hoping the summer because all of us canceled many trips to Europe last year. And I think we want to go back. And I think that by the end of the summer, enough vaccine will be in people's arms worldwide that we'll be able to see that start to reopen, but just start. Helene, you know I love catching up with you. It's great to get you on the program. Helene Becker there, Thanks Karen, for having me. senior research analyst. Thank you for being with us. <clears throat> Brian Levitt. Ordered by his general counsel not to talk about Bitcoin and joins us Likewise. right now with Invesco <laughs> Global Market Strategist as well. We'll avoid it. Brian, there was a theory two or three levits ago about international investment and a recovering Pacific Rim. Dovetail in EM disappointments of the last couple days and weeks with what we observed the tension in Anchorage yesterday. How is the Pacific Rim doing? Yeah, so China actually has emerged from this, as most people know, in, in quite good shape. Uh, you're right, the economy is is quite stable there. Valuations look attractive, and it, that place is still a hotbed of innovation, although, you know, some concerns about the regulatory environment. I think the, the story right now has just all been, has been all about the United States, the rates market, expectations of, of whether the Fed's going to have to raise rates sooner rather than later. So it put a floor in the dollar. Dollar moves up a bit. You get some capital flight 
out of the emerging markets, concerned that this is 2013 all over again and we have the tantrum. I think those concerns are right. are overstated. This is a this is a reversion to the mean in the United States. We want to connect the dots, cross the T's. Alaska Airlines, John, a nonstop. This is from Anchorage to Minneapolis. And John, again, it's just that feeling of the opening up of the economy. One of the top picks over at Goldman because it's so leveraged to the domestic play, Tom, to the leisure story as well. Right. Brian, I think you've picked up on the irony of the moment perfectly. In year one, investors question how markets can go up if the economy is so challenged. Your line, your words. In year two, the question if the market can go up if the economy is so good. And Brian, I've heard people ask it. I've asked it. Boom year, it's coming. Can we really have a boom year in a market that doesn't perform well? I think the markets will perform well. I mean, it's going to be a more volatile year. You find year two of a market cycle tends to be more challenging. We saw that in 1983. We saw that in 2010. It's those second years to to what you know you had just said. We questioned whether it's too good. The reality is we know there's a lot of pent up demand. We know there's a lot of fiscal support and we know we're going to have a good economic backdrop. The problem is it raises concerns about policy. And when you have concerns about policy, that's when you get volatility in the markets. But Let's remember, this is what we all hoped for a year ago. And yeah. we're seeing earnings improve, the economy improve. I think inflation pressures will, will rear their head, but I think they ultimately fade as we move out beyond 2021. Well, let's move out beyond 21. This cycle moves quickly, Brian. We've been pricing in all of 21 throughout the last couple of months. In fact, since the beginning of November, we've been pricing the boom that is 21. When do you start thinking about deceleration in 22? Well, I think that investors need to keep their mind on deceleration in, in 22. Now, I think this recovery reflation trade plays out for a bit. You know, your, your value-oriented parts of the market get their day in the sun. But ultimately, you know, this idea that we can't own anything long duration, that interest rates are going to keep going up forever, I, I caution against that. What you see as you move out into 2022 is, look, we all have pent up demand. How long does that persist? We know that this income replacement that you get in the fiscal deal starts to fade as you move out into 2022. And let's not forget the long term structural forces against inflation, like an aging population globally, mm -hmm. automation of the workforce, new technology. So I'm not yeah. ready to sell anything long duration. I think growth stocks will be back in vogue as we move out into 2022. And Brian, I'd really underline there the new technology, which is, of course, a great mystery. Paul Romer with Bloomberg earlier this week, the laureate. Brian Levitt, how much cash is really out there? I get all these trillion numbers, but when Invesco sits down and calculates out the investable cash that's out there waiting to find a warm spot, how much is it? Is it a lot? I mean, I'm, well, I'm not looking a, for a number answer. I'm looking for something Friday scientific. Is it ginormous or is it a lot? It's a lot. I mean, you, it's, it's ginormous. I mean, you had a trillion dollars <laughs> go into money market strategies last year. You've got, you know, I mean, even if you think about the amount of money that's just sitting in government related bonds, you're looking at a few trillion and you know, you add it all up. There's a substantial amount of money sitting on the sidelines. Even if you think since 08, you've had far more money, a ginormous amount of money go into fixed income strategies versus equity strategies. Yields have come up a bit, but nonetheless, the Fed's still telling you they want to inflate away a good percentage of it. You're getting zero in money markets. The Fed wants greater than 2% inflation. That's not a great deal. Ultimately, I think that money continues to find its way into equities and credit. And let's remember, a lot of this support on the fiscal side is going to end up in markets. It's, it's Some of yep. it is finding its way into middle-income household pockets, and that's going to find its way into markets too. So I would say asset price inflation um, 
is, is a good part of this story. Brian, let's stop talking about managing other people's money and talk about managing your money. I understand it's young Carly's birthday today in the Levitt household, so happy 13th <laughs> to the young Levitt. For you, Carly needs some money when she comes to New York City in about 10 years' time. If you had to buy and hold for a decade for your young 13-year-old, where would that money go today, Brian? Let me first say, I hope it's a decade before um, before she's going to New York City to hang out with her friends. I, I assume bet. it's going to be a little it's going to be a little bit sooner than that. But I, you know, I, I think that you have a trade here on value stocks. But if you're looking out long term, ten years, you want to look for structural growth businesses globally. Um, I, I would think that a yeah. lot of those are going to be in the United States. Some of those are going to be in the emerging markets as well. Brian, is she trading GameStop off the couch? Not yet. Maybe I should teach her to. Not yet. I, I just feel bad that, you know, last year the friends were honking the horn on the street to celebrate the birthday. This year, a little bit better. We're celebrating in the garage. Yeah, Maybe by brutal. 2022, we can go inside. Yeah. Have fun, Brian. Happy birthday. Thanks a lot. Appreciate Enjoy it. the celebrations. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Brian Levitt there of Invesco, the global market strategist. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.